We are back. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, uh, well, this is Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDTV. As I said at the top, uh, we're looking forward to having uh, Republican State Senator Randy Brock on this this slot. I don't think we have him yet. Uh, Brett Curtis in the control room is going to tell me when uh, when uh, Senator Brock arrives on the phone. I know he's in committee in the legislature, but he was going to break out and, uh, and join us. I wanted to ask him about the governor's state of the state address. And uh, we've got the Democratic reaction from Representative Tom Stevens uh, last week. And I wanted to get uh, Randy Brock's reaction. Uh, Brock is the uh, is the Republican leader in the Senate. Uh, and I, he's in charge of uh, the Republican priorities and uh, implementing, trying to implement to the extent he can, the governor's priorities. Um, and while we're waiting for uh, Senator Brock to join us, uh, feel free to call us at 244-1777. That was a fascinating conversation with Mike Pichak about uh, baby bonds. No shortage of callers who, uh, who said, let's extend that to uh, the, the senior citizens. Uh, let's 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 grow that program. I was interested. I I thought at six million a year, uh, if you do the math, uh, the hit to the state budget, I would think would be relatively small. And if you're taking the money from the unclaimed property uh, money that already exists at the state treasurer's office, um, I could imagine that state appropriators. Uh, over in the legislature might be able to look kindly on that. Be fascinated to see what the governor thinks about that. Um, I, 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 the, the, uh, it's an attractive idea that if you invest 3,200 bucks for every kid on Medicaid when they're born and when they get to be 18, that number is uh, triple that. Um, and that you could take that money between the ages of 18 and 30 and spend it on uh, one of four uh, uh, sort of essential items uh, of adulthood, uh, buying a house or, or paying for college um, or technical training, job, job training, some sort of education. Uh, I, can, I can see how that the political uh, lines might converge in favor of such a proposal. So I know the governor has uh, been very clear that there's not a lot of cash around uh, this year. So we'll 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 see about that. Um, we take your calls two four four one seven seven seven. We're we're awaiting uh, Senator Randy Brock, uh, who is probably stuck in a committee uh, somewhere. So uh, while we while we await his arrival, let's talk about the governor's uh, governor as an upcoming. Uh, announcement today, which I have not seen, but it has to do with housing. Uh, I'm checking uh, VT Digger and other news outlets to try to make sure we know what that is. And we're going to carry that live. I believe that's at noon. We're going to carry that live uh, when the governor makes that announcement. Uh, it's, you know, I've seen estimates that says that Vermont has to build 40,000 new units of housing uh, to, to catch up with 
our lack of good housing stock and the lack of uh, apartments and homes that we have for people. So uh, that's it's, I'm going to be fascinated to see what the governor proposes versus what the legislature is willing to do. Um, as you know, this is a recurring theme. The legislature is overwhelmingly dominated by the Democrats. And so, as the governor said in his uh, State of the State speech, uh, I, uh, he acknowledged, I don't have, the, I don't have the, the power to implement my, my proposals. Uh, all I can do is, uh, is basically make, is make my case. Uh, so he's making his case. He's going to make it with housing at noon today. And uh, we'll see where that goes. The key people when it comes to housing in the Vermont legislature are people like uh, uh, Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale, uh, uh, Senator Jane Kitchell, uh, Tom Stevens of Waterbury over in the House. He chairs the housing committee. Um, Speaker of the House, Jill Krawinski, is going to be a major player. And so... Governor's going to make a proposal today, and we'll see what the legislature does with it. But uh, it's it is you know I always learned I learned a long time ago that even if the governor doesn't have the votes um, in terms of enough Republicans to carry his agenda, uh, he still has one big thing, and that's the bully pulpit. Uh, when the governor wants to have a press conference uh, or give a big speech or make a policy proposal. He does have the sort of first mover advantage. He does have the ability to uh, summon the press and the media to his conference room, and they will sit around that conference table and listen to what he has to say. And that has always been the the major sort of the major advantage that the governor has when dealing with the legislature. But um, it's pretty clear that that housing is the major issue that's facing all of us and governor's going to make a proposal. The legislature's going to deal with it and we'll see where it goes. Um, we're going to take a break while we continue to wait for uh, Randy Brock to join us. Uh, I, he sounds like he's stuck in committee. Uh, if he can't uh, join us, we'll, uh, we'll get to 1030 by uh, dealing. We'll go, we'll be going through the news. We'll talk about the weather and other things. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And we're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And we are joined, I believe, by State Senator Randy Brock. Do we have you, Senator Brock? Ah, yeah, okay. We don't have him. Uh, He just texted me and said that he was calling in. So Brett Curtis is going to tell me uh, when he joins us. Um, I, I, I suspect that he's uh, running out of a committee and uh, and dialing us right now. Uh, so our questions that we were going to ask Senator Brock were, you know, wh- what did he think of the governor's state of the state uh, address and the Democratic reaction? Um, what are what are the Republican priorities uh, this legislative session? Um, you know, and is it is it reading too much into things to say that uh, that as, as soon as the state of the state address was over, um, 
the the House immediately overrode the governor's veto uh, last year of the bottle of the proposed changes to the bottle bill with about 132 votes, maybe 131. That that includes a bunch of Republicans. And I was I wanted to ask Senator Brock whether whether we what what do we read into that? Does that mean that the governor's support among Republicans in the legislature is slipping? Uh, I tend to doubt it. I I think. I suspect the Republicans are uh, solid. And there we have uh, Senator Brock with us right now, Senator Randy Brock of uh, Franklin County. He is the leader of the Republicans, and he is uh, kind to slip out of committee to join us on the show. Welcome, Senator Brock. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm I'm happy to be with you. I'm glad to get out of committee because hopefully I prevented some damage from happening in the meantime. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's always fun to talk to Senator Brock because um, he has, I think, one of the better senses of humor in the entire legislature. But let's get serious. Uh, sure. Senator Brock, what did, what did you think of the governor's state of the state address? Um, and, and you know, I, I know he's doing a big uh, a housing proposal today, which I have not seen. But let's let's go back yes. to the state of the state. And what's what's his agenda? How do you feel about it? Where are we going here? Well, uh, the state of the state, I think, defined the state of the state uh, pretty well because it pointed out uh, some of the major issues that are affecting us. Uh, and those uh, issues that, that, that stand out are the demographic issue uh, in that we don't have the workers that we need to fill the jobs that we have open, which leads us directly to the housing crisis, which is one of the reasons why we don't have uh, the people that we need. We certainly have a, a major housing problem. The governor is going to be speaking about it today. I'm, I've got a couple of remarks during the press conference uh, as well. And it's something that is urgent. It's something that's urgent that we've got to deal with. Uh, and uh, we have a, a crisis of, of cost. Um, we did a lot of spending, as I think we all know, during the pandemic. Uh, We got a huge amount of of federal money in, which was very helpful uh, to help us manage the crisis. But uh, in some cases, we slipped a bit in that we used some of those monies to fund things that are going to be continuing costs in the future that have to come out of the general fund. And that's going to be a major challenge, particularly we now face the results not just of one flood, but of two. Yeah. And, and, and yet you, and you have to, uh, you and the governor have to try to uh, pursue this um, uh, somewhat, uh, you know, what's the word, a restrained spending agenda uh, in a legislature that is dominated by Democrats. How do you look ahead to that and how do you deal with it? Well, we, we try to use logic uh, which sometimes is not successful, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I've, I've said many times that the reason that that, that I'm happy in, in the General Assembly is that I have low expectations, and often those expectations are at least barely met. But but with all seriousness, uh, we have to talk with each other, and we do. Uh, we talk uh, on a bipartisan basis, and we try to come to agreement to come up with solutions that, that work for everyone. We have to recognize, though, that we are, are limited. We are not the federal government. We can't print money. Uh, we 
have, though, a very long history, regardless of which party is in charge, of being able to deal with fiscal issues and fiscal problems. Um, you know, uh, all the states in the United States, uh, uh, we're the only state that is not required to balance its budget annually uh, uh, and either by uh, borrowing money or by raising money. And we always balance the budget. Uh, regardless of which party's in charge, and I expect that we will do so again this time, getting there is what's difficult. Right. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk to us as much as you possibly can about the governor's uh, proposal on housing that he's going to make later today. Is there anything you can tell us about it? I mean, you know, it, it takes money to build housing. Uh, so I'm not sure what his proposal is going to be. Can you give us any hints? Well, I think I I, I don't want to uh, step out in front of the governor. I'd I'd like to have him uh, have his moment to discuss the issues. But uh, those issues are are, are the issues that uh, were discussed, at least to some extent, in the State of the State message, and it's issues that we've been talking about for quite a long time. Housing is expensive in Vermont, and there's not enough of it. Uh, we have uh, a shortage, uh, particularly of housing, for uh, our workforce. And as we have a need for workforce, uh, we find and we see it particularly among uh, folks like medical professionals coming to, uh, to, to the hospital in Burlington, of not being able to find a place to live within a reasonable commuting distance uh, of Burlington. I have a, uh, a woman who contacted me not long ago who's uh, – uh, works at the medical center in Burlington, and the closest place that she could find to live for herself and her child was in Highgate. That's a long ways away, and there are lots of stories like that. And we see this happening over and over again. And when we look at the availability of housing, there's very little available, very little being built uh, in in comparison to what our needs are. Um, this is a, a tremendous challenge to us. Uh, and the housing that's being built, uh, uh, there's a shortage of workers to build that housing, and the cost of the housing, both both in terms of labor and materials, has skyrocketed. In some cases, what we're seeing, uh, for example, is that the cost of new housing, middle-income housing, uh, actually costs more to build than banks will, will loan against it based on the value of the home after it's built. That's a situation which I don't recall Vaughn ever having seen before. Uh, One of the major problems, and if not the driving problem to a great extent, is the difficulty in building new housing, even if we had the staffing and and the funds to do it. And that is the regulatory environment we have uh, makes it very difficult and very slow to create new housing uh, of any scale. That's something that we have to be able to manage and manage in a way that preserves Vermont's environment, the environment that causes most of us to want to live and stay here on the one hand, and the need for housing to provide the labor and to provide the housing for uh, families and kids who want to come here and also who want to stay here. Yeah, it strikes me that the <clears throat> that the need to build more housing uh, in the legislature is going to be uh, sort of very much connected, intertwined with uh, some permit reform. I know the governor's been very vocal about we've got to modernize yes. Act 250. It seems like 
with the Seth Bondgards bill over in the House, and there must be a, probably a vehicle in the Senate that they're <clears throat> there's yes, we're, we're working on, and, and I hope in the yeah. Senate that we'll be able to come up with a consensus bill that will get uh, support uh, by all parties uh, to uh, to actually do some permit reform that, again, maintains the environment that we want on the one hand, but also gets things done uh, in a faster and more efficient way. Speed is one of the major issues uh, that is that, that we're confronted. Uh, we have a, a, a very arcane system uh, with a substantial amount of duplication. And the one thing that we don't see, even as we look at the system, is how much time is expended by people who are trying to obtain permits in the pre-application process, the process of trying to get things ready to be able to submit an application in the first place. And the other thing that we don't see, but we certainly hear a lot about, is the number of builders uh, who simply decide not to build in Vermont because it's just too difficult. It's too uncertain. And that, that issue of certainty is, is critical because even if you, if you do all the things that we want you to do, there is still a significant degree of uncertainty as to whether or not your uh, application for a permit uh, to build and to develop a new uh, uh, set of housing will or will not be approved. Uh, there's much more subjectivity than uh, many builders would like because if they're going to expend the amount of money in engineering, legal time, expense, as well as design to build something, they want to know that if they follow the rules, at least the rules that are, are presented to them, that their project will be approved. And right now, there is not that certainty. Senator, how did we get to this situation? Uh, it, it's tempting to say that, that, that this housing crisis and the lack of people to build houses suddenly happened because of uh, the pandemic. But it, as you just said, no, it, it didn't happen because of the be pandemic. A the pandemic was perhaps an aggravating factor. But it, this is yeah. something that has been building and growing for a long period of time. And, of course, we also have an economy that is changing. And those changes have perhaps accelerated the visibility of the need that we have right now. And you're on the Senate Finance Committee. So how does how do you on the committee, you and the chair Ann Cummings, attack this? Well, um, the, the, the Finance Committee, as, as I've said in, in other broadcasts, really should be called the Tax Committee because that's what it does is it raises taxes. And none of us yeah. want to serve on the Tax Committee. Uh, but we do, because government has to be able to pay for what it is that, that we ask to be done. Um, solving most of these problems is not going to be free. Uh, solving all the problems we have in Vermont, ranging from, uh, from education to health care to all the things that we need in social services and mental health and, 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 and law enforcement, all of that stuff costs money. And we have to figure out how to pay for it, but pay for it within the resources that we have and not impoverish Vermont taxpayers in the process. That's a challenge. I, I am struck uh, watching the national political scene. Uh, I'm struck with your comments and how they are almost completely focused on the substance of the issue and not about partisanship by party. Uh, am I overstating that, or is it is it really still true that 
you really talk about the substance in the legislature and and you there's you really refrain from attacking your your colleagues in the democratic party well i i think that's 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 a fair statement is vermont uh is blessed in a way in that we are not uh the national political environment and that we don't spend our time fighting with each other but we do focus on solving on solving problems now uh, certainly, there are different views as to how to solve problems, and that is a substance of the discussion. Uh, but there's a phrase that I've used before uh, that I, I'm really proud of about, is that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I noticed uh, reading rereading your bio the other day that uh, that you, you're still uh, on your bio in the Vermont Legislative homepage. You still have your phone number on the on the on the homepage, which always strikes me as one of the great, great things about Vermont. Yeah, well, you you, you don't know what voters think unless you talk to them. It's pretty fundamental. Yeah, and you have to be accessible and, for that to happen. And I would point out that uh, you have now. I always think of you as a as a fairly new senator. On the other hand, you have been there for quite some time. Uh, this is your sort of second go round. Um, give us before we uh, have to go. Uh, what's changed, you know, between when you first came to the Senate and and today? What is there anything different? Well, the people are, are different in many ways, although we, we certainly have some of those who, who've been there for a long period of time. I, I did a an op ed, I don't know, three, four years ago that was entitled Groundhog Day. And it was, if you remember the movie Groundhog Day, in which yeah. the protagonist wakes up every day and it's the same day, it's Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And that's sometimes what it's like to be in the legislature because we look at the same issues time and time again, uh, often from the same lens. Uh, ideally, we do something about the issues and that, that's something that I'd like to emphasize. We're doing a lot more of that now with at least some of our planning to prevent simply repeating the same thing over and over again, but actually making some quantitative improvements of change. And I think we're making improvements along those lines, but that's a, that's a slightly different subject. But um, there is not there. Part of the change is the composition of the body has changed somewhat. And this year in particular, we have a substantial number of new members who have not experienced some of these downturns that we're seeing right now of the effect of the floods and the fact that we've committed uh, significant amounts of our money, and now we're looking at where do we get the money to do the things that we need to do? Where do we get the, the, the money to deal with uh, and, and repair uh, the damage of the floods and to prevent future, future uh, floods, as well as to deal with the other issues that we're faced right now, among them housing and the demographic crisis. So we have a lot of challenges, and this is going to be a very, very tough budget year. Okay. Well, we'll be watching, and uh, at the Senate Finance Committee, especially uh, your work along with the Washington Senator and the chair of that committee in coming. Senator Brock, uh, thank you, as always, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. I, I always appreciate it. Okay. Senator Randy Brock, he's the Republican leader in the Vermont Senate. He's going to be at a press conference with the governor uh, later today about housing. And we'll be carrying that live on WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be right back. You're listening to WDEV.
We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And uh, that was a great conversation we had with Senator Randy Brock, who's on the Senate Finance Committee. He's the Republican leader. And in about an hour and a half, he's going to be joining Governor Phil Scott at a press conference to talk about housing. I have no doubt that he's going to talk about permit reform, how we need to modernize Act 250. Uh, What I'm really looking for is how are we going to raise the money to build the thousands and thousands of new houses and apartments that we need in this state? Um, It's going to be expensive, and it'll be fascinating to see how the governor's going to attack that problem. Uh, And Senator Brock will uh, be back uh, to uh, join us on the show in the future to talk about the details as we move forward in the legislative session. But on another issue, uh, it turns out that a bunch of schools in Vermont have been without good drinking water for years. And state taxpayers are footing the bill to provide bottled water to those schools. Uh, the reporter that broke that story uh, Peter Doria from Vermont Digger is with us to talk about that story. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. So that was a, that was a kind of an arresting headline that 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 uh, happened earlier this week. Some Vermont schools have been without potable water, tap water, for years. Tell us about the story and what's going on. Sure. So, and just uh, just. Starting out, um, uh, I appreciate the credit for breaking this. I don't. I know that you know some other outlets have been writing similar stories about this. I know the WCX has done some good reporting on this, so I, I don't think I would. I would say that about myself, but but thank you. Um, so uh, basically, uh, there are a number of schools across the state that have do not drink orders for their tap water um, because testing has revealed. Uh, high levels of chemicals called, we just call them PFAS, P-F-A-S. Um, and they're found in like a lot of industrial products, um, cleaning products, uh, firefighting, like foam. Um, and for a number of years now, um, you know, some of these schools have had high PFAS levels in their tap water. And the state of Vermont uh, has a limit on how much you can have in water and these schools are exceeding it and they have to use bottled water. Um, and it's going, you know, it depends on the school. Um, some have just been doing this for maybe a year or so. Uh, some have been since 2020 or 2019 or, um, you know, a number of years now. So I, I was just, you know, hearing about this, I was just sort of struck, I think, especially since, you know, the flooding over the summer and, um, how tough it was for folks who were without drinking water um, for a few days or a few weeks. I was just struck by the fact that some of these schools have kind of been dealing with this for for months or years. Peter, how, how many schools are we talking about here? Um, so there are roughly half a dozen, including a child care, including an independent school, um, and there's a few hundred kids at those schools. I uh, should have gotten an exact number. I would. I think it's 200 to 300 somewhere in there. And if you if you uh, stack the PFAS problem 
On top of the PCB issue, which uh, the PCB issue is the, is the issue that closed Burlington High School and forced all those kids to go to and teachers to go to school at the mall and uh, on, on Church Street. Um, that's a fair, you know, that's a fairly large environmental problem in our education system. Um, that's co- going to cost us a lot of money. How are we going to deal with that? How is the legislature going to deal with? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, just to put things in perspective a little bit, you know, the I, I would say that the PCB problem and the PFAS problem are on, I think, very different scales. I mean, I, I think the state has thus far paid out eighty, ninety thousand dollars to provide water to uh, these schools that don't have potable tap water, um, whereas you know PCBs are just costing into the the millions, especially in Burlington. Um, and it's sort of just, we don't have kind of a light at the end of the tunnel as far as PCBs. Like we don't know kind of when we're going to know the whole bill. Um, so I, I do think these are different. I think, you know, my kind of how I'm connecting them in my head is just that Vermont schools are, are really old and a lot of them are in pretty rough shape. Um, and you know, that includes PCBs and that includes PFAS, but there's just like a lot of, you know, structural problems. Um, you know, a lot of these schools are, are very desperately in need of, of renovation or construction. Um, and I, I do think I don't feel like I could speak to at this point, you know, what the legislature is going to do. Um, I do know that this has been a, a very big topic of, of discussion. You know, a lot of other states have kind of state programs that'll help offset the local costs if, uh, a school need re- needs renovations or needs to be rebuilt. Uh, Vermont's program has been on hold for a while. Um, and so, you know, it's unclear if your school needs a lot of work. Uh, are you going to be like, is your community going to be on the hook for this? Is the state going to start chipping in again? I don't, I don't have the answers to that. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a paragraph in your excellent story, which, which talks about over the years, imagine, and all of us who went to school, remember this, uh, the floor waxes, floor polishes, and floor cleaners, and other chemicals that would be used as part of the cleaning and maintenance process would then wash down the drain. Mm. Uh, And the drain would go into the on-site septic system, and then the PFAS would travel through the aquifer and into the drinking water system. It's it's a very simple paragraph in your story, but it, it takes us back to when we were all kids in grade school and high school, and we, you realize, oh gosh, you're right. We were we were using huge amounts of chemicals in these schools, and eventually they make their way uh, into the water system. So, I was struck by that paragraph. Yeah, that, that was something that um, to, someone at the state told me was just that this is kind of the PFAS issue is sort of like these small rural schools are going to be more susceptible because they might have a, you know, a water system on site and they also have a septic system on site and, you know, maybe not as in like a larger city hooked up to, I don't know, a municipal water system or something. So, you know, not to say that everything's going exactly into the same place as far as washing things down the drain and drinking water, but there's just like a lot of proximity. They're, they're very close together and eventually, you know, things will kind of leach 
into the aquifers. I mean, this is my understanding from, you know, what the state told me. Sure, because, I, I, because as yeah. you point out in the story, a lot of the schools are on their own septic and on their own uh, well. Uh, they're not on public water systems. Yeah. I, I think the, another thing to note is just that um, there's still there's a lot of movement currently around PFAS at like the federal level and everyone's expecting a sort of federal PFAS limit um, to come out, I think any, any week now. Um, and this, I think ties back to what you were talking about with PCBs and that there's sort of a similar thing happening where Vermont is like a little bit ahead of the game as far as like environmental regulations and regulating how much um, you know, this toxic or harmful chemical can be present in, in water or a building or what have you. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of people in the state would say this is a great thing. You know, we're, we're taking better steps to protect our residents. But it's also, you know, there are like costs. And this is kind of an example of that. And PCBs is very much an example of that. Uh, and lastly, you you got a chance. The lead of your story uh, took you to uh, Craftsbury Academy, um, and, the, and there's a great picture of the new, fairly new gymnasium up there. That must have been a fun visit. It's always fun to go to Craftsbury Academy, but they're uh, they're not drinking the water there, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. I um, I think that they, you know, these schools. Uh, I've just had to adapt and I think it looks like bottled water. And I think it looks like, you know, cooking with bottled water and drinking out of these, um, you know, the big X number of gallon jugs. Um, and my sense is that it's kind of just become normal for a lot of them. You know, I think at the beginning it was a hassle and a scramble and a lot of logistical issues. And now this is just how they operate. Well, uh, you can read about it at vtdigger.org. It's Peter Doria's story about uh, Vermont schools uh, being with some Vermont schools being without potable tap water uh, for years and what they're doing about it. Peter, as always, thanks for coming on. We really, really appreciate the work you do and all the work Digger does. Oh, thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Okay. Peter Doria, Vermont Digger. A great story about uh, some Vermont schools struggling with without potable tap water and this issue of PFAS. Um, we'll talk more about that after the break. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And uh, I want to talk about the weather just quickly. Uh, first of all, we'll take your calls at 244-1777 in the remaining time that we have left. I just spoke uh, via text uh, to Lewis Porter, who is the general manager of Washington Electric Co-op, which covers much of central Vermont. Uh, and he tells me that uh, he's down to about 200 people, uh, customers without power. Um, the GMP and Vermont Electric Co-op service territories were not so lucky. Uh, there's about 28,000 people without power uh, statewide. Um, uh, Lewis pointed out that uh, we got lucky this time uh, and we did not, he did not have to pay outside crews to come in uh, and uh, sit around and, and wait to see what the storm was going to do. 
there is another Saturday storm coming, so that might be just the opposite. But uh, it, uh, as he said, it all depends on where, how, and where the weather hits. Um, he points out that last Christmas was our turn in the barrel, um, and uh, and who knows what 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 it brings on Saturday. But uh, he said uh, now he's giving me an. Yeah, he says uh, Washington Electric is down to about 340 without power. Uh, 200 of those likely to be resolved within a couple of hours. Uh, GMP has 14,000 people out of power. The Monoelectric Co-op, 8,600. Uh, Barton, 2,200. Lindenville, 1,500. Orleans, 700. So uh, Lewis Porter, uh, and he's, he's still texting me, Enosburg, 252. So um, looks like, uh, and and I just learned that I, I'm my power never went out. So it looks like East Montpelier, Montpelier kind of dodged the bullet this time around. But as we all know, uh, anything can happen. So thanks to Lewis Porter for that uh, that update. Uh, I want to talk about uh, quickly, uh, and if you want to call in and comment on this two four four one seven seven seven. Did you see the? story about um, uh, the the United States Defense Secretary. Uh, apparently, he had he went into uh, the hospital um, for a prostate cancer surgery and didn't tell anybody. Uh, and and I just heard John Kirby, who is the spokesman for the National Security Council, uh, talk about uh, the the fact that the White House did not know about this. Um, that they were surprised by new details of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin going into the hospital for prostate surgery. Um, Peter Baker's story in the New York Times uh, says the White House was caught off guard once again on Tuesday when it learned that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had been diagnosed with prostate cancer a month ago and had surgery to treat the disease under general anesthesia on December 22nd without notifying President Biden or staff. Uh, okay, I got to tell you, having dealt with some of these people, they they, they are they are not happy. At, they are not happy in the White House with Secretary of Defense Austin and his staff, and uh, and I it's uh, I'm really surprised at this story. Um, the new revelations, according to the story in the Times, exacerbated the frustration in the West Wing of the White House, where officials. We're still dealing with the discovery that Mr. Austin, 70 years old, was secretly hospitalized last week for complications resulting uh, from the prostate cancer surgery. Uh, and aides are saying, uh, aides to the president are saying they would not fire Mr. Austin. I, I you know, uh, President Biden really likes the defense secretary, uh, but uh, uh, chief of staff at the White House, Jeffrey Zients, ordered a review of procedures. And, uh, and send a directive to cabinet secretaries making clear that they are to inform the White House when they are unable to perform their duties. But I would add that John Kirby, uh, uh, the White House spokesman, said that that uh, the White House did not know uh, that Austin was in the hospital. Um, and uh, he said, it's not good. It's certainly not good, which is why we want to make sure it does not happen again. Republicans, of course, uh, in the form of Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, 
said, quote, the failure to notify Congress of its inability to perform its duties was a clear violation of the law. Austin had been taken by ambulance uh, to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, three days before President Biden was told about it. Uh, even then, the Pentagon said only that he was being treated for complications from an elective medical procedure, and Mr. Austin did not even reveal the specifics of, a, of his condition in a telephone call with the president on Saturday. One might ask, uh, did the president ask, uh, or did the chief of staff, who is usually on the phone during these calls, uh, did, the, did they think to ask the defense secretary, what's wrong with you? Um, the White House only learned Tuesday morning that Mr. Austin had been diagnosed with prostate cancer, at which point uh, the chief of staff, Jeffrey Seitz, informed uh, Mr. B uh, President Biden. Mr. Kirby, the spokesman for the White House, confirmed that the White House likewise did not know at the time about the December 22nd surgery that required general anesthesia. Now, this all takes place as uh, you know, during a war between Israel and Hamas uh, and rockets being fired uh, by uh, rebels. Uh, and I mean, it is it, over there in the Middle East. Um, it's, it's, I suspect that this is all going to become much ado about nothing. Uh, but it seems to me that the president's going to have to have a conversation with the defense secretary. You would think that the defense secretary would uh, tell uh, the, the White House chief of staff exactly what's going on. Uh, here's here's Secretary Austin uh, today, uh, or no, I'm sorry, in a statement on Saturday, I recognize I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. I commit to doing better. Um, I mean, I, you know, you're balancing privacy here versus, Versus, uh, you know, the, the the obligation on behalf of a high-ranking public official to tell the White House uh, what's going on with their health. Um, yeah, I, I can certainly get the the privacy angle, but uh, but boy, when you become the Defense Secretary, you are surrounded 24/7 by a security by a security detail, and uh, the White House uh, wants to know where you are at uh, at all times. So uh, we'll see where that goes, uh, but we haven't heard the end of that. Uh, that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Peter Doria, VT Digger, uh, Mike Pichak, the state treasurer, and Republican state senator Randy Brock. By the way, you know, you can follow each of these people. Uh, Peter's writing is at vtdigger.org. You can follow Mike Pichak at vermonttreasurer.gov. And my favorite, you can follow Senator Brock and all of his colleagues on the legislature's website, legislature.vermont.gov. And as I said, when I was talking to Senator Brock, uh, he's still one of those politicians who lists his home telephone on the website. Still one of the great aspects of our government here in Vermont. Uh, remember to join me Friday for our week in review of the week's news. We'll speak to seven days uh, reporters, former Congressman Bob Nabb at All Things Washington, and I think we'll get a surprise visit from Congresswoman Becca Ballant. We'll talk about the post office uh, issue in Montpelier. Uh, she was here along with Senator Peter Welch on Monday. 
uh, complaining about this, and we'll talk with uh, Congresswoman Woman Ballin about what exactly she's doing about it. I'm always looking for guests uh, who will provoke us, inform us, and challenge us, so please send me your suggestions. You can hit me up on Twitter, email me at vermontviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Remember, you can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at wdvradio.com anytime, anywhere. Remember, I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. Remember, uh, we are going to, in a little bit, in about an hour, we're going to carry the governor's press conference live. I think he's got an announcement to make about housing. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Brent Curtis, Danny McGivergan, Lee Patel, and Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDBB. My thanks also to the folks at, w- at KWMR, Community Radio in Point Reyes Station, California, where I've been spending the last uh, few weeks. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics, culture in Vermont, and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio, friendly pioneer, WDEV.